Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Frank Edelblut. <laughs> that joke will be lost on our vast listenership that is not in New Hampshire. <laughs> well, Google it, people. You have little computers in your pockets all the time. Well, Jack blurted that out because we are actually headed to New Hampshire for this episode. We are headed to a small town in central New Hampshire called Croydon. Jennifer, I'm really excited for this road trip. As per usual, I will be riding shotgun by staying at my desk, and I wish you Godspeed. Well, I have an extra special task lined up for you this time. Jack, I need you to look into a particular chart. It has to do with school spending, and I'll just give you a little hint. One axis, I won't <laughs> tell you which, goes up and up and up over time. Yeah, yeah, it's not the axis, right? It's one one plot line. But yes, I know exactly what you're talking about there. Yeah, I'll I'll fish that out and I'll be ready with some commentary. Let me set the scene for you. It's a snowy Saturday afternoon in March, and residents of the New Hampshire town of Croydon have gathered for the annual school district meeting. Officials gave a presentation about the proposed budget. I'm guessing you probably don't need me to describe that. And then something unusual happened. A local resident named Ian Underwood, he's a libertarian activist who is part of New Hampshire's Free State Project and a member of the local board of selectmen, rose to his feet and made a motion. After they did their presentation, we opened up the discussion on this warrant article, shall the town appropriate $1.7 million to fund the school and the, the tuitioning that the school does and everything the school district does. And so I stood up and I said, well, um, I would like to make a change. And here's why I want to make that change. And I explained that everybody knows what a budget is. That's when you have a certain amount of money, your salary, your pension, your Social Security. And you have to live on it. And everybody knows what a ransom is. It's when somebody demands something and says, if you don't give it to us, we're going to hurt you. And what we're being presented with by the district is a ransom. They're basically saying, give us $1.7 million or we'll take your homes. And so I said, you know, um, there's a different way to do this. We should give them a budget. So what would that budget be? The budget that Underwood proposed was $800,000, a 53% cut. But as he explained on a recent episode of Free State Live, the money wasn't the point, or at least it wasn't the only point. People are foc so focused on the number that they, they are not really appreciating that the point of it was not to pick a number. It wasn't necessarily to spend less money, although, you know, that, to unpack that, that's, you need to spend less money in order to get a better education. You can't get a better education for more money because you just keep doing the same thing. Regular listeners will recall that we devoted an entire episode to the Free State Project and its progress in translating the goal of privatizing public education into policy at the state level in New Hampshire. Definitely check that out. But first, back to Croydon and to the events that set this episode in motion. I'm Amanda Leslie. I am a longtime Croydon resident. I've been there fully half my life, just over 20 years. 
I am a mother of two daughters who are in 8th and 10th grades. They attended Croydon Village School, K-4, through and my husband is born and bred in Croydon. He attended Croydon Village School. I go to many of the monthly meetings, but I try really hard not to miss the annual meetings. And I typically get the town report beforehand so I can just look it over. And I did that this year and I read through the minutes for last year's school budget meeting. In other words, Amanda is very involved. She actually ran for school board this year and lost by four votes. Amanda says she was motivated to run out of concern that the board needed somebody who was committed to public education. The Free State Project now dominates the board. Ian Underwood's wife, Jody is the chair. And Amanda says that the language that we heard Ian using about the school budget being a ransom has started to show up in meeting minutes. So when it was time for the annual meeting, she ventured out into the snow to attend, something not many other Croydon residents did. I mean, it was poorly attended, but that's kind of par for the course in Croydon. It didn't strike me as especially poorly attended, maybe a few fewer people. But yes, it was snowing outside. I wouldn't qualify it as a blizzard, but it was snowing enough that I know power was knocked out. And I know that the snow event did lead some other neighboring towns to cancel or postpone their town meetings. The school board had already approved the proposed budget at one of its earlier meetings. But on this day, the discussion about the cost of educating Croydon's kids ventured into more philosophical territory. In the context of the discussion around the budget, Ian got up, was recognized, and went off on his manifesto about the budget being a ransom, not a budget. And here's his proposal, officially made, to cut it to $800,000. I don't remember who seconded it, but someone did. Then there was some heated discussion around it with people speaking passionately on both sides. Tom Moore was sitting up front for his final meeting as a school board member since he had just given up his seat. But that's kind of the tradition is that whoever is outgoing stays at the table through the annual meeting and then steps down. He spoke um, at length and passionately in favor of the original budget. Our superintendent got up and expressed grave concern and strongly urged voters not to move forward with the uh, cut. And eventually somebody called to end debate and it, it went through. And that was that. By a vote of 20 to 14, Residents approved Underwood's proposal to slash the town school budget by more than half. I mean, I had a physical reaction within my body of a racing heart. I felt sick. And so when it ended, I left as quickly as I could and went home. I bowed off to my daughters who were there. I mean, they didn't know what to make of it. And I uh, started calling people. I think I called my mother first, maybe, uh, and said, you will not even believe what just happened. So, Jack, am I correct in assuming that you have never actually been to Croydon, New Hampshire? I don't know. Where? I think maybe I have been. Is it on the way to Montpelier? Why, yes, Jack, it is. (laughs) 
<laughs> you didn't think I knew where it was. Yeah, Montpelier, what a lovely, I know we're talking about New Hampshire, so I am probably offending the New Hampshire people by saying that Montpelier, Vermont is just so beautiful. But yeah, I know where Croydon, New Hampshire is. Well, even though there are many things about this story that are highly specific to Croydon and the people who live there, I think there are some larger themes that will resonate with our listening audience, no matter how far away from New Hampshire they are. And so one thing that struck me right away is that the gentleman we heard from earlier, Ian Underwood, as he was making his case for what he calls the ransom versus the budget... He relied on a document that I think you will recognize almost instantly. It is a particular chart having to do with school spending. Does it ring any bells, Jack? This is this is the chart. It's the the famous chart where spending just goes up and up and up endlessly. I think it even ends with an arrow indicating like there this will never stop growing and then flat test scores at the bottom. I, is that what the chart we're talking about? That is exactly the chart. And I am guessing that people who are listening right now are even at this very moment hearing, you know, politicians cite this infamous chart. In fact, the just the day after the Croydon budget maneuver took place, the commissioner of education in New Hampshire had an op-ed in the Sunday paper where he referenced the chart. And so it, it's actually, it's from 2012. And Jack, you're going to tell us where it comes from and why it matters, but it's been around. Yeah, this this graph has been around. Uh, we've talked about zombies before on this show, and this is definitely something that won't die. We see it coming back again and again. I think Bill Gates showed up with it at Davos one time or, or some other place. I'm pretty uh, sure Betsy DeVos carries around a copy of it in her Birkin bag. Right, right. Instead of a little copy of the Constitution, she's got a little copy of the, uh, the Cato school spending chart. So if folks want to pull this up, I know that many of them may be on the road, in which case do not pull the chart up right now. We are not responsible for that. Um, there is a waiver online that you can sign if you want to look at uh, data alongside us. Um, but uh, for the rest of you, wait till you get home and then Google Cato Institute uh, chart education spending. That ought to get you there. And what you'll see is an exercise in ideology, right? At first, it seems pretty compelling. Uh, you see spending on education, total cost continue to rise, and you see test scores remaining flat. And the first way that we can begin to think through the ideological nature of this product is to just think about, like, where's the y-intercept on this? And I can see you giving me stink eye, Jennifer. I will explain what the y-intercept is for people who haven't been in a math class in a few years. So it's the place on the vertical axis of the graph where the horizontal axis of the graph intersects. And we would ordinarily think that that would be at $0, but here it's at $45,000. And so we can imagine that if it started at zero, what you would do is you would lift the point where spending begins, which is actually at $55,000. You would lift that up, 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 and it would make the steepness of that graph a lot flatter, right? So that's a particular move that Cato is engaging in here. Uh, right, Andrew Colson, who uh, was the director of their so-called Center for Educational Freedom, Right, that's that's a particular approach to data visualization um, that is, I would say, manipulative. 
Another thing that they do here in the same vein is they're looking at a figure that nobody ever uses in education. So, uh, you know, I, at first I was trying to figure out what are they spending $165,000 on? Like what? That's not a figure I'm familiar with. And they're aggregating all spending from kindergarten all the way through 12th grade, right? And that's another decision to try to create larger figures here, right? Um, so the larger the overall figure is, when something becomes proportionally larger over time, right, you're going to just see larger spending at the end. Um, so that's another data visualization move that's being made, and we can see that there's an ideological position that, um, that you know, even if we're not confident uh, and certain that that's behind it, it certainly is convenient for the ideological position uh, of the Cato Institute. You know, when the Cato Institute presents spending over time against test scores, right, what they're implying is that this spending is being wasted. And we could unpack that further if we had more time and talk about why test scores haven't risen over time. But I think one important thing to keep in mind is that that certainly isn't going to measure the effectiveness of a lot of the things that we're spending more money on that are not about test scores, right? It's about feeding kids. It's about making sure that they get mental health services. It's about, you know, connecting them with various medical providers, right, who can come to campus. It's about making sure that classes are a little bit smaller so kids stay in school, right? Even if that doesn't end up leading to test score results, right, it does lead to more education, kids getting degrees and having different kinds of labor market outcomes. Um, plus, there's the fact that lots of young people who were previously being denied an education are now in the system, right? Their test scores are now being captured. So, you know, I think there's a lot to be really skeptical about with regard to this graph. Um, and I invite folks to, as they're Googling around for charts, um, to just take a look at some of the commentary that folks like Kirabo Jackson or Bruce Baker or other experts in the field have made about presentations like this. We will be revisiting that chart a bit later in the episode, but first, let's head back to Croydon, where word of that drastic school budget cut spread like wildfire through the town. And it soon reached Hope Damon. I've lived in Croydon for 36 years. My husband and I raised our now in their 30s daughters here. I, my dad taught school for all his career in Massachusetts and then was on the school board for a long time in his retirement. So we talked education in my childhood home all the time. I went to public college in Massachusetts. I am proud of my education at Framingham State. I think public education is a right, not a privilege. And the idea that we wouldn't fund it anywhere close to adequately um, was highly motivating to me to get involved. Now, before we go any further, we need to pause here just briefly for a crash course on how New Hampshire does and doesn't fund its schools. Hope, take it away. For those who might not be aware, New Hampshire doesn't have any broad-based tax. We don't have an income tax. We don't have a sales tax. Everything, whether local in the town or statewide, it's either funded by local property taxes or it's funded by business and industry tax or various fees like our car registration fees are more than in many states, for example. So there's this, what I would consider to be a hodgepodge system of funding 
you know, government and the services that government is generally expected to provide. So in terms of education, if you live in a property-rich town and that town has a lot of resources from their property taxes, they have a lot more resources to go to education. And if you live in a town with less valuable property, different tax rate, poorer people, there's not as much money for education. We don't have a, a tax base that supports consistency of education funding. Thank you, Hope, for that succinct explanation. Because New Hampshire relies so heavily on property taxes to fund its schools, there's an inherent animosity baked into the system, one that pits parents and others who want to see adequate resources for the schools against people with fixed or limited incomes. Now, when I first heard about what was happening in Croydon, I couldn't shake the feeling that this plan to slash school spending, far from being some spur-of-the-moment thing, was actually a long time in the making. In fact, if I happen to be someone who was opposed to paying taxes and to the very idea of public education, Croydon would be just the sort of place I'd launch my crusade. To start with, it's tiny. Just 24 students attend the Croydon Village K-4 school, affectionately known as Little Red. The town's 53 other students, including its middle and high schoolers, have to go to other schools in the area. My name is Ed Spiker. I live in a small town in New Hampshire called Croydon. I moved here from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania about 20 years ago. I'm full-time painter for about the last 20 years and just trying to get involved with the community. Like most parents in Croydon, Ed sends his kids to school in the nearby town of Newport. And as Newport has battled local tax backlash of its own, the district charges Croydon more and more to take its students. As of next year, that rate will be more than $17,000. But with its budget now slashed, Croydon couldn't pay that, which meant that parents like Ed were going to have to come up with the additional funds themselves. It would have put myself and my family all together actually in a, in a pretty tough spot because I would have had to find a way to make up eighteen to $20,000 worth of tuition that would have been taken away. For me, that equals out to more time away from my family, no matter how it works out, whether it's doing my regular painting gig or picking up extra work or a second job or a third job, I guess I should say. I already have a second job. Ed and other parents weren't entirely without choices. They could try to find a school in the area that charged under $10,000 and that would take their kids, or they could go with the option being touted by Croydon's school board, a mostly online alternative known as a micro school. Ed says that for his kids, that was a hard sell. I have two sons, one who's 17, who's a junior going into his senior year, is Against it, very much so. I mean, he's he's been in the Newport School District for the majority of his entire school life. He loves public school. He's got a welding program that he's been in for the last couple of years. He's actually excelled in to the point to where he mentors and tutors underclassmen in that. My other son is, I mean, he's he's very much an individual. He has no desire to stay inside and be part of a, an online curriculum. He, he had already gone through that with COVID, and it didn't actually work out too well for him. He found himself very much so lacking focus and just wanting to, I guess, entertain himself and not so much learn. 
more about microschools, regular listeners may recall that we've discussed the concept on this program before. Think Uber, but for schools. New Hampshire's Education Commissioner Frank Edelblut has been a tireless promoter of Prenda microschools run by an Arizona for-profit. Now parents here were being told that this stripped-down model of education without extras like art, music, or even certified teachers was all the town could afford. Angie Bolio is a parent and a former school board member. With slashing the budget by more than 50% and then saying, well, this is the only thing that we can do within that budget is, you know, we have to hire this service and your kid's going to learn online and then do some project-based learning. After coming off of two years of pandemic learning, where a lot of it was done remotely, We all just kind of panicked. I think as parents, we all panicked because we saw how much, for the most part, our children missed out on with the online learning. Like, you know, my son specifically doesn't learn well online. He wants to be up and doing. And, you know, like in his welding class, he is actually doing things and learning how to weld and sitting behind the computer. He has a really hard time staying engaged and focused and motivated to do anything. And I think a lot of students are that way. And especially K to four, can you imagine a kindergarten student having to do 40 minutes of their four hours of instruction, because that's all it is, 40 to 60 minutes of that online? I don't know how a five-year-old is going to sit that long and what they're going to gain from that. There's just one more piece to this story before we move on. Several years ago, Croydon implemented a school choice program that pays for families to attend other schools besides the ones in Newport. The program started with area public schools and then expanded to include private schools, including religious institutions. Members of the Free State Project led that effort, but by slashing what the town can spend on education, public or private, the Free Staters are now shifting the burden of paying for school onto parents, something that was not part of the original school choice sales pitch. Here's Amanda Leslie again. I think that the move to school choice in Croydon is one that was driven by the Free State Project's goals at diverting money from public education into private hands. And so when that was all unfolding, oh, 10 years ago now, I voted against, first of all, ending our area agreement with Newport and branching out on our own, and then later spoke up against including private schools in the schools that we would pay for. And that led to me really kind of butting heads with some of my friends and neighbors who I otherwise agree with in many ways. And my resistance was because I could see it as uh, the beginning of a slippery slope. And I think it has slid us right down where we are. So, Jack, I think what interested me about this story was that, you know, while it's very specific to New Hampshire, there are all sorts of big issues here pertaining to the future of education, questions about who pays for it, how it's paid for. And one thing that really stood out to me as I listened to some of the things that that Free State Project activist Ian Underwood has talked about was that he raised several times this issue of which kids are actually educable, as he put it which kids are capable of learning and which are not. He wasn't very clear on how this determination would be made. 
And I think, you know, what I started to see the outlines of was a vision of the future that's actually extremely bleak. And, you know, it has real, like, real implications, not just for how we think about school, but how we think about society going forward. And so... I flashed back to that Cato graph that we started with uh, near the beginning of the episode and your very helpful overview. And I feel like this is a big piece of it too, right? That we spend more because our understanding of who gets to go to school has expanded. Yeah. In many ways, the vision of the future is a vision of the past, right? Uh, So uh, in an effort to keep it snappy earlier on. I didn't talk about uh, the exclusion of students with disabilities from the public education system, but I think that's the clearest example of how this vision of the future is exactly a vision of the past, right? Once upon a time, if you were a student with disabilities and your family brought you to the local public school, believing that you were entitled to an education just like every other young person in your community, you would most likely be denied and told that the school didn't have appropriate services for you. Uh, So, you know, it isn't until 1975 when we get the Education for All Handicapped Children Act, which is later renamed IDEA, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. It's only then that we get this guarantee of a free and appropriate education for all young people, regardless of disability status. And we can see that if what schools are told is that you're going to get a certain dollar amount and you should just educate the kids you can with those dollars, um, then nobody's going to serve kids who frankly cost more to educate, right? If somebody needs individual attention all day long, right, that's a young person who is literally 20 times more expensive to educate. Well, maybe not literally, right? Because you're going to get an instructional aid rather than a licensed teacher. But, right, you're talking about massive expense to meet the actual demonstrated needs of young people. And so it makes me really worried when we think about a privatized system in which providers right? Maybe it doesn't even make sense to talk about schools anymore, right? But to talk about education providers and the kinds of incentives that they will face. And many of those incentives will get them to think about, well, who is the customer, right? Let's not talk about students anymore. Who's the customer who will cost us the least to educate for the number of dollars that we will receive? And, you know, this doesn't just stop with students with disabilities, Right? We can think about young people growing up in poverty, for instance. Right, Schools can do a lot for those young people that we have so far refused to do outside of schools in our society, at least in most places. That costs money. Right, It costs money to do the kinds of things that we know make a difference. Wraparound programs cost money. Right, Additional kinds of services cost money. Extended day costs money. And so if we are at all committed to the idea of equal opportunity, right? Forget some of the more um, liberal interpretations of that core concept, right? That's a core concept that liberals and conservatives have agreed upon for a long time is the idea of equal opportunity, right? There are people who will go far beyond that and say, well, let's not talk about an equal starting point. Let's just talk about 
treating people with dignity throughout their lives. What does that cost, right? Forget that broader, more ambitious vision. Let's talk only about equality of opportunity, right? If that's something that we agree on, then how on earth are we ever going to realize that if we're essentially throwing up our hands and saying, well, that's too expensive? Back to Croydon. At this point, you are probably wondering to yourself, well, what happened? We're getting to that. Those phone calls that Amanda Leslie made way back at the start of this episode? Well, within a matter of days after that budget cut was approved, a grassroots effort to do something about it was underway. Chris Prost and his wife moved to Croydon six years ago. They have a two-and-a-half-year-old and a baby on the way. They also make beer for a living, which is relevant to our story. We have a small brewery that we operate basically in the barn on our property called Polyculture Brewing. And it's kind of focused on using a lot of local ingredients. We use like local, a lot of local malt, local hops and other like kind of foraged ingredients when we can. I mean, we live in an old farmhouse. We brew in a barn. So we're a little more rustic than your average brewery. In the aftermath of the budget vote, Chris was one of many local residents trying to figure out the answer to this question. Was there some way to reverse what had just been done? They started scouring state laws, or RSAs, otherwise known as New Hampshire Revised Statutes Annotated, something Chris was pretty familiar with, having already navigated a thicket of state laws when he set up his brewery. So I think a lot of people independently started researching, was it possible to kind of re-examine the budget and what the process would be? Several people kind of started finding this RSA 197 separately, but together found it. Finding it's one thing and then kind of interpreting it is another, because a lot of these RSAs are written in not the most straightforward manner. And that's another thing we've, we knew from the business. So I think that was another factor is just having multiple people read through it and understanding how this process would work and that it could actually work and what the requirements would be. I think that was the first step. And an RSA 197 was the answer. All they had to do was follow a few simple steps. With a petition of at least 50 registered voters, you can actually petition to call a special school district meeting. And you have to state, you know, why you want the meeting called. In this case, it was a specific warrant article, which was to kind of restore the budget. And then the second part specified, like, if you're going to do anything that would affect a budget that's already been allocated, the number of ballots have to be at least 50% of the registered voters at the time when the original vote was taken. Those two things put together set the the basic framework. Now all the organizers had to do was get half of the town's registered voters, which numbered 565 at the time that the original budget vote was taken, and get them to attend a special meeting. That required talking to every single person in town, wherever they were. I mean, the most basic, which is a very small town, sounds goofy, but we had some people go to the dump, the transfer station, which is open on the weekend certain hours. And so, you know, that was a big outreach. Just we asked a landowner outside there if people could stand there and just hold signs and talk to anyone who stopped to chat with them. That was on the ground. And then we did some phone banking and we did the actual door to door. I think it was a week before the vote. 
which is how, on a recent Saturday, I found myself at an old YMCA summer camp in Croydon, the only facility in town large enough to hold an assemblage of that size. But would enough registered voters show up? And had Chris and Amanda and Ed and Hope and Angie and the rest of their crew done enough to convince them to reverse the budget cut? Well, it's time to find out. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> okay. Uh-huh. So... I can cue here that we are impatient to vote. Yes. Mr. Moderator, we call the question. make that almost time to find out. It turns out that having hundreds of people cast secret ballots and then counting those ballots takes a while. But at last, we've got our answer. For the, the final vote... Is was three hundred seventy-seven. Yes. Okay. Uh, and two no. That final tally was three hundred and seventy-seven to two a number that represented close to 60% of registered voters in Croydon, including 70 new registered voters. Former school board member Angie Bolio says it was the single largest gathering of residents she can recall. I am so proud of our town. I have so much love and pride for my community for showing up the way they did. We have never, ever had that many people come out to vote Even for a presidential election, which is the hours or 12 hours a day that you can vote, we've never had the turnout that we had at that special meeting. We've never had that. And that, to me, speaks volumes about the values of our community and that when there is something on the line, such as this, our children and their education, people are going to step up to the plate and they're going to come out and make their voices heard. And I'm just so proud of them for doing that. At a time of such deep political division, it was really amazing to see that people actually can still come together when it comes to something they really care about. Chris says that that may have been even more important than the budget issue itself. I think for a lot of people, it restored some portion of, you know, maybe faith in the systems that govern these things that people like this could come together. I mean, this was an issue that was not necessarily easy to sidestep kind of like the political argument or like bigger politics of it. But I think for a lot of people, like it just didn't really even come up. So I think that's showing that people could come together for these issues. And I think here it comes down to a lot of like traditional values. I mean, I think there are a lot of people attracted to this town because of the property taxes and things like that. But I think this just shows that it's not necessarily just about the money for everybody. Obviously, there's some lines that I think can't be crossed no matter what kind of side of the political spectrum you're on. A while back, I mentioned that in working on this story, I couldn't shake the feeling that there was a reason that Croydon has emerged as a flashpoint in this battle over the continued existence of public schools in New Hampshire. Well, the atrophying of local democracy is part of that story. And Hope Damon says she thinks the residents of Croydon have learned an important lesson. The message that I think Croydon has solidly learned, don't be apathetic, don't stay home. Don't wait for somebody else to protect your kid's education or your 
local police department or your road crew or whatever services you want, be there to make sure that they happen. Because otherwise, there is no guarantee that it will stay the way it is. Six votes almost did away with our public school system. A huge thanks to all of my new friends in Croydon, Amanda Leslie, Hope Damon, Ed Spica, Angie Bolio, and Chris Prost. And Jack and I will be right back to discuss why we think the Croydon story matters. And of course, we'll be revealing the topic of this episode's In the Weed segment for our Patreon subscribers. Here's a hint, social and emotional learning. Why is it under attack? If this intrigues you, just go to patreon.com slash haveyouheardpodcast to become a supporter. So, Jack, I have to tell you that it was really inspiring to be at that old YMCA camp in Croydon as, you know, hundreds of locals piled in and, you know, and they they voted. It did sort of restore my faith in humanity. And I think in many ways what spoke to me was they were presented with the bleak vision of the future that we laid out in the last third of our book. They were told basically, here's what your dollar's going to buy. Anything else that's extra, anything else that costs more than that, you're going to have to pay for that yourself. And they looked at that and they said, thanks, but no thanks. That bleak vision of the future is not what we want. And and that, you know, and, and you heard people say, you know, like they did not view this as a partisan issue. And, um, you know, the fact that they had more people vote that day than vote typically in presidential elections, I think really says something. Yeah, and I th- I think we should take credit for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if this is uh, restoring uh, of my faith in anything. I, I feel like it's the opposite. But you know, the idea that that people would look at facts and reason through them, and then arrive at a rational conclusion. Right where they said, actually, this this looks like a bunch of nonsense to us. The fact that that is surprising to me is making me a little sad right now. But but I guess let me let me look at this glass as being half full. Right where we we live in a world in which nonsense like that is perpetually sold to people, and um, and we don't see this kind of outcome. And so I think we should be encouraged that. You know, people are not dumb. I think that's a that's a part of partisan politics that is that is so. I don't know. It it's just that's the part I think that offends me about partisan politics is that each side presumes that the other side is stupid. Um, and I think I have more faith in Americans than that. Right? I think that that we're being manipulated a lot. Um, I think that's definitely true, and I think we are easily manipulated, but that's the human condition. We're not stupid, and I think that regardless of political persuasion, when we actually sit down and you know reason through things together, deliberate together, I think we're all capable of seeing what's in our best interests, our best collective interests. Um, so wow! Now I'm I'm like the, you can you you can hear the music playing in the background. I, I really can. It's Aaron yeah. Copeland. Yeah, right. And and you'll be happy to know that I did just get you a guide to Robert's Rules of Order. Oh, that's fabulous! That's fabulous. All, all I need is a a powdered wig, and then I'll be all set. 
Well, Jack, I feel almost crass after that uplifting speech from you, <laughs> turning to the material matters of trying to lure people over the paywall. Oh, boy. Here we go. Rattling the change cup again. As our regular listeners know, we rely on your support to keep the podcast going, to keep this excellent content coming your way, and to pay our great producer. And we do that through patreon.com. All you have to do is go to patreon.com slash haveyouheardpodcast, and you'll see a list of all the cool extras you can get just by throwing a few dollars our way each month. And one of them is access to a special area that we call In the Weeds. And... Today, our topic is social-emotional learning. Discuss. <laughs> you got this Cheshire cat look on your face before you said that. And if I didn't know, you know, we, we pointy-headed academics sometimes can be a little out of touch. You know, like, who's Britney Spears? Um, but if I hadn't been recently reading about how the radical right was all worked up about social-emotional learning, uh, I would really wonder about your choice of an in-the-weeds topic. But I, I'm actually looking forward to this one because I frankly don't understand it myself, so maybe I'll learn something from you there. And uh, Jennifer put the kibosh on the Champagne Seminar. So those of you who want to join me in the luxury lecture room, uh, I'll be uh, doling out wisdom. And uh, we've got those double-wide reclined seats and uh, cup own, holders, cup holders. Own, yeah, big enough pop, for champagne pop, bottles. Machine. No, there's no champagne, Jennifer. You took all the, you broke all the champagne bottles. Do you remember that? Um, and for those of you who won't be joining me in the luxury lecture room, please remember there are loads of ways that you can support the pod without uh, spending any of your precious. Bitcoin or Ethereum. So uh, as you know, uh, we love when you share episodes with friends and colleagues. Uh, you can do so on Twitter. Tag the show handle when you do so we can see it. It's at Have You Heard Pod. Make sure that you're a subscriber so that whenever a new episode comes out, you get it. And, uh, you know, we're a, we're a scrappy startup still, uh, despite the fact that you know, we may be a steady presence in your life. Uh, there are still, I would say, you know, close to 300 million Americans who have never listened to our show. So uh, spread the word. <laughs> On that note, I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. This is Have You Heard. 